podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Thursday, the 28th of January, and we're brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is, of course, a VPN provider. That's a virtual privacy network. It allows you to keep your data safe online, and it allows you to change your location. So should you want to access American Netflix or view your Now TV outside of the UK, you'll be able to do that with a Liberty Shield VPN just by changing your location. LibertyShield.com is the website. Check it out. They've got a hardware uh, package and a software package. And if you use the code EPLVPN, you'll get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft. Home of Hopcroft is a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks, I have to start with an apology. Uh, to Sheffield United and all their fans for uh, dismissing their chances of getting a result last night. Um, that's got to be the shock result of the season. We'll get to it, but apologies to all Blades folk. I really didn't see that one coming. Um, we'll start with the earlier games. Chelsea drew nil-nil at home. With Wolves, in a game in which they dominated possession, dominated territory, but in truth, struggled to really create anything of note. A couple of half chances, a couple of decent shots from range. They really lacked a cutting edge. Now, in his first game in charge, Tuchel went with three at the back. Aspilicueta, Silva and Rudiger. He played Callum Hudson-Odoi as a wing-back, which was strange, but sort of worked. Went with Jorginho and, and Kovacic in the middle of the park and Ben Chilwell on the left. And all of that was fine, and all of that helped, but the problem they had was that he went with Zayic and Havertz behind Oli Giroud. And while all three are very talented players, they're all a little bit one-paced. There wasn't enough movement, there wasn't enough pace, there wasn't enough movement in behind. And they found it quite hard to break down um, a very deep block from Wolves. Wolves themselves did have a couple of good chances, probably the best of them coming to Pedro Neto after a dreadful error by uh, by Eduard Mendy. But then Donker had a decent chance as well uh, from a header from a Neto cross. Neto is becoming one of my favourite players in the league to watch. I don't imagine he'll be at Wolves for long. He is a sensational talent. He was part of that Braga youth team that also had Trinkiao and I think David Carmo was part of it as well. So. Huge, huge talent there. All in all, Wolves will be much happier with the result. Chelsea can be happy with their performance. There's no point in analysing too much of what they did differently because Tuchel took one training session and there was talk that it wasn't even him that picked the team, that the team had been sort of decided before he took over. 
that this is what they were planning to do anyway. Um, you could see there was more onus on ball retention, short passing, possession dominance, but as I said, didn't lead to anything of note in terms of chance creation. Um, it's it's early days. It's early days. It's a good point for Wolves. They're in 13th position. They go uh, they go ahead of Crystal Palace now on goal difference. And after back-to-back defeats, it's good for them to just start to pick up some points again. They'll be looking up the table thinking they should be higher. And they should. With the talent they have, they should be higher. Uh, for Chelsea, they move up to 8th position above Arsenal. It's It's not great for them, though, that they're level on points with Arsenal, given the trouble Arsenal were in six, seven weeks ago. And it was that win over Chelsea that sort of turned around Arsenal's season. Tuchel will improve things. He just needs time. He'll need, you know, time on the training ground, matches to put things into practice. But Chelsea will go in the right direction. And I think Wolves can only really improve. I I don't see them getting much worse. No wins in the last five. I think they'll turn it around because there's too much talent for them not to. Um, Sean Dyche will be fuming today. His Burnley side beat Aston Villa uh, 3-2. For Burnley to score three goals, I mean, that's very exotic. I can't imagine Mr. Dyche will be too enthralled with that. He likes one goal, maybe two. Three is practically unheard of. Nick Pope showed once again that he should be England's First-choice goalkeeper with a string of great saves to deny Villa. Ollie Watkins had put them 1-0 up. Uh, back-to-back goals now for Watkins after what had been a bit of a drought. Ben Mee equalised with a powerful header before Jack Grealish slid home uh, across to, to make it 2-1. And then things got a little bit scrappy and went weird for Villa. Dwight McNeil slung in a low cross that everybody missed. And um, it found its way into the bottom corner. A shame for Emmy Martinez, who'd played brilliantly to that point, but didn't read it very well. And then Chris Wood, three minutes later, puts Burnley 3-2 up, and it would stay like that. It was a very entertaining game of football, I have to say. It was a really good game of football. Both teams came to play. Villa, I mean, when they're in form, when they're when things start clicking for them going forward, between Grealish... Watkins, Barkley, and Traore, who's been a really good addition now that he's found some form. When it works, they're really exciting to watch. They got that nice platform that Douglas Louise and John McGinn provide. I've criticized them before, and I have to do it again. Tyron Mings, I mean, his positional sense, especially on the Chris Wood goal. How is Matty Target the one left marking Chris Wood on that cross? And Mings just standing around doing nothing, looking like a buffoon. Uh, he wasn't particularly good on the Ben Me goal either. And as I've said before, I think Villa will need to upgrade on him if they want to continue to develop. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm assuming their aim is to establish themselves as a Europa League team because with the amount of money they've put in over the last two summers, that's really got to be the aim. They've also obviously got this deal going for. Uh, Morgan Sanson this month. So again, it's it's more backing for the manager. They're only going to do that if they want to progress, and if they want to progress, they can't do it with Tyron Mings or Tyron Mings. Um, Villa dropped to tenth. 
But they do have two games in hand on the teams above them. So, you know, they can still get themselves back into those European positions. For Burnley, it's a huge win. It just is. They're 15th now in the league. They're three points clear of Newcastle with a game in hand. One point behind Crystal Palace and Wolves, again, with that game in hand. So after what had been a shocking start where they took one point in the first six games, they've now won six of 13 and gotten three draws. They've really turned it around. Dyche is working his magic again. And they're doing it without scoring many goals. They've got 13 goals this season. The new team with, with less is uh, Sheffield United. The job Sean Dyche has done since match week seven is is as good as anybody in the league when you consider what he's working with. Um, I, I think these are two good teams. I really do. I, I think these are two teams that are always worth a watch for one reason or another. With Burnley, when they feel they can win a game, they do play quite good football. When it's a game that they're you know heavy underdogs, just how disciplined and well-drilled they are defensively is worth watching. I know it's not always enjoyable, but you really do have to commend Dyche's ability to turn a number of average players and a couple of good ones into a superbly well-drilled unit. They rarely make mistakes. They've got Quality through the spine in, in in Pope, who, again, should be England's number one. There's absolutely no argument against them at this point. Last season, the argument was, well, Dean Henderson. And it was a, probably a toss-up between the two. But Dean Henderson's not playing for Manchester United now. There's no argument to be made that Jordan Pickford is England's best goalkeeper. None whatsoever. Pope is levels above him. And if that doesn't change by the Euros and Pickford still starts, that's a really, really bad look for Garrett Southgate. Because it becomes obvious then that form and performances don't really matter to Southgate. Reputation is what matters. Or maybe a bit of backside kissing. Um, Brighton took on Fulham. It turned out to be a nil-nil, but it was, again, it was a decent game of football to watch. Two good footballing sides, plenty of attacking talent on display. Brighton had the better chances, though Fulham came very, very close to winning the game right at the end when Lewis Dunk had to make a really good clearance from Ruben Loftus-Cheek. I thought Alexis McAllister again looked lively, looked looked inventive, created one good chance for, yeah, for Neil Mopay. Ivan Cavaliero, he's just he's too greedy. He's too greedy. He's not a good enough player to be as greedy as he is. And on a good break, he could have slipped in Loftus-Cheek to his right or Luckman to his left and instead decided to take it on himself and just doesn't have the quality to do it. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. If Fulham had a real manager, they would be mid-table. There's too much talent in that squad for them to go down. But the manager is so poor that it does look like that's where it's going for them. They stay 18th. They're five points behind Brighton. They do have a game in hand, but I think that's against Spurs, which isn't ideal. For Brighton, again, they stay 17th, but they're only a point behind Newcastle. 
Um, with the way Newcastle are going, five defeats in a row, it, it doesn't take much imagination to see Brighton go above them. And then it's it's Newcastle that Fulham have to look up at. Brighton do have a difficult run of games coming, and maybe that'll be Newcastle saving. They've got Spurs, Liverpool, Burnley away, Villa at home. That is four tough games in a row. Then they get a little bit of a favourable back-to-back with, with Palace and West Brom. But the next four are tough for them. For Fulham, they have an opportunity in their next game. They've got West Brom away. It's a game they should win. West Brom are terrible at home. They're terrible in general. Then they get Leicester at home. Then West Ham at home. Then Everton away. And then Sheffield United at home. So And then Palace away. So again, there's six, seven, maybe eight points there that they can take. Which, if Brighton aren't picking up points, can lift them level or above Brighton. Maybe level or above Newcastle. Again, a real manager gets it done. Scott Parker's not a real manager. To compound the fact that Jordan Pickford shouldn't be England number one, he uh, he threw in a goal. Um, Everton won, Leicester won. Leicester dominated the game, had the majority of the possession, the majority of the good chances in the game. Everton went 1-0 up through James Rodriguez. A slight mistake from Wesley Fofana, but it's a great goal from James. Everton had one or two decent chances after that. Calvert-Lewin had a good-headed chance late on, but it was largely one-way traffic. You can tell with Leicester, though, when they don't have Jamie Vardy up front, they're just not the same team. Big blow for them last night. Wilf and Didi has to had to go off, so we'll wait and see how long he's going to be out for. Hopefully it's not long. But all things considered, I think both sides will be happy with the point, though Leicester will feel they maybe could have taken all three. Uh, Yuri Thielman shot straight down the throat of, of Pickford. I'm not sure how he managed to throw that in, but he did because that's what he does. Maybe a goalkeeper with normal-sized arms would have saved it. One good thing for Leicester, we finally got to see Fafana and Sionchu side-by-side as centre-back pairing. That's the pairing I want to see. I think that has potential to be really, really special. I think Sionchu at his best, top three centre-back in the league. Um, and Fafana might be the best young centre-back in the league. He's he's absolutely sensational. Um, Everton stays seventh. They're level on points with Spurs. They're a point behind Liverpool, but they do have a game in hand. Leicester stay in third and have grown their gap over Liverpool and West Ham. Four points on West Ham, five on Liverpool, but Liverpool do have a game in hand on them. That game in hand is tonight against Tottenham. Tottenham are sixth, so it is a game with with real top four implications. Regardless of the result of that game, West Ham will drop to fifth. So you'll have, you know, it's, it's been a short run for them in the top four, but they can say they were there. Whether or not they can get back in, whether or not they can keep this run of form going, I'm not sure. They've got Liverpool at the weekend, so that'll be a tough one for the Hammers. But the the top seven is really, really strong. It's really tight. There's only eight points separating Manchester City on top to Everton in seventh, and Everton have a game in hand on Man City. 
Um, City stayed top last night after Manchester United somehow contrived to lose at home to rock bottom of the league, Sheffield United. United, who were crowned title winners when they got a draw at Anfield by the likes of Rio Ferdinand and Gary Neville, managed to lose to a team that had taken five points from their 19 games so far this season. At home. Not even away. If they'd lost away, you'd be like, okay, well, you know, you can lose away. That's that's normal. But when you think about it, United have lost four times this season. All of them have come at home. The home form has not been particularly good this season. United, Sheffield United went 1-0 up through a keen Brian-headed goal from a, a John Fleck corner. A little bit of controversy about it. Uh, Oli had a, had himself a bit of a cry after the game because he felt like Billy Sharp impeded David De Gea. Watch the footage back. Nemanja Matic pushes Billy Sharp into... So either the goal stands or it's a penalty. Harry Maguire scores to make it 1-0. Oli Burke, after some of the worst defending you'll ever see, puts the blades back in front. I'm not sure what United were doing. Maguire plays a weird two-yard back pass to De Gea, who passes it out to his left to nobody. And then United sort of stand around and let Sheffield United get one shot away. Bounces back. They recycle it. Give it back to the exact same player in the exact same spot who takes pretty much the exact same shot, except he makes better contact with it. It comes off Axel Tunzebi and flies in off the crossbar. United did have a goal disallowed after Harry Maguire encroached on Aaron Ramsdale. There's absolutely no question that was a foul. He looked at the goalkeeper and not the ball and jumped side on into the goalkeeper. It's a clear foul. There can be no disputing it. Both of the decisions were correct, and United can cry all they want about it. But again, go back and watch Matic shove Billy Sharp into David De Gea. Then have a look at Harry Maguire and what his eyes do before he jumps for that ball. He looks at the goalkeeper and not the ball. Both the decisions were correct. United deserved to lose. That's the the be-all and end-all of this, is that they deserved to lose. They were dreadful. When Bruno Fernandes doesn't play well, United are not a good team. Look at the Burnley game. Bruno didn't play well. United were atrocious. Paul Pogba's scuffy, deflected goal wins them the game. Fulham. United don't... Bruno doesn't play well. United are poor. Pogba scores an absolute worldie to win them the game. Liverpool. Bruno doesn't play well. United are really poor. Pogba almost wins them the game. Unless they get a moment of magic from a Pogba, a Rashford, maybe a Greenwood or a Martial, if Bruno doesn't play well, they're not a good team. I still don't think they're a top four team. I watch them play and I don't see a top four team. I see a goalkeeper who's nowhere near the level he was before and has become error prone. Makes bad decisions. A defense that 
has individual talent, but each of them is limited. I would say Luke Shaw is the most talented player in that in the normal starting back four. The most rounded. He's decent going forward. He's a good defender. Juan Bissaka, he's a limited defender. He's good in 1v1s, but his positional sense is poor. He doesn't sweep the centre-backs well. He doesn't read the game particularly well. He's got great recovery pace. He's not good in the air. And he's very, very poor at defending the back post on crosses from the le- from his left, United's right. Um, sorry, his left, the opposition right. Maguire has no pace and is dreadful when the ball goes behind him. When the when the game's in front of Harry Maguire, you can almost see why United paid eighty million, almost. But when he's turned or he's asked to defend side on, he looks like a fellow who won a raffle. He panics. He isn't aware of movement around him. Fails to keep track of runners. Doesn't anticipate well. And beside him then you've had the rotating cast of Lindelof, who's good but has some issues. Bailly, who's good but rash. Tunzebi, who I think is very talented but hasn't played enough football in his career, really. For a 23-year-old, He's played 65 games overall. Now, 25 of them, sorry, 30 of them came on loan at Aston Villa in the championship. Another five of them were, were cup competitions with Villa. He's only played 30 games for United, 15 of them in the Premier League. Five this season, five last season, four in 16, 17, one in 17, 18. So he's never really had a consistent run of games. There's a lot of talent there, though. It's it's clear as day he's very, very talented. Now, unfortunately, so uh, before I go, congrats to Sheffield United. It's a, an amazing win. And now you're only three points behind West Brom. And you're only five points behind Fulham. Now, you're still ten points off Brighton, so I would still suggest that survival looks very unlikely. but maybe you can save yourselves the embarrassment of finishing bottom. Because the way West Brom are playing, they don't look like a team that's winning the game anytime soon. Two wins from the last three for Sheffield United. I said, go for the cup, have a good run in the cup, it'll lift the mood, it'll build confidence, doesn't matter who you're playing, just go and win some games. And look what happened. Since the Cup started, they've won two league games. Now, I'm not saying I'm a genius. But, you know, you'll allow me that one. Um, Anyway. After the game, social media became an absolute cesspool. Be it Twitter or Instagram, it was just disgusting to see the comments leveled at Anthony Martial and Axel Tunzebi. The racial abuse, the emojis that were used, they were absolutely disgusting. And every person involved in that should be 
completely ashamed of themselves. To their credit, United and the United players have immediately come out, rallied round their teammates, condemned all of the disgusting posts and tweets that were sent. Kick it out have come out as well and condemned it. You would hope that the administrators of the social media websites or, or apps will ban the people who sent those tweets. And I don't just mean suspend them for a week and then let them back on. I mean ban them. Ban them, ban their IP, get rid of them. Because they're scum and they don't deserve to be integrated into a society with the rest of us who are just normal human beings who want to all get on and behave like normal human beings. You can't at any point go on social media. You, you shouldn't go on social media and tweet anything negative at a footballer anyway. Especially a young player. Like, Martial probably ha has a team that handles social media, so he might not see it. But I guarantee you Tunzebi saw it. I guarantee you he saw it. Imagine what that poor lad felt like this morning. This is a kid that moved to the UK at the age of four from the Democratic Republic of Congo with no English. Worked his ass off to become an excellent student and get great results in school. To captain every Manchester United team he has played in all the way through the academy ranks. To work his way into the first team. And live his dream of playing for the club he loves. He didn't even make a mistake last night. He's not to blame at all for the goal. It just hits his leg. He's trying to block the shot. Now, maybe you could say he could have made a better attempt to get out and close Ollie Burke down. But he didn't make a mistake. It hit his leg and deflected in. The people that made mistakes were Harry Maguire, David De Gea. You could argue Alex Tellers was a little bit lazy. But this poor kid has woken up today probably feeling like crap anyway because his team lost and he's greeted with this from these mindless scumbags there's no place in society for racism forget football there's no place in society in 2021 for racism now, I know that orange buffoon that ran America for, into the ground for the last four years enabled a lot of the cretins to crawl up from, out from underneath their rocks and feel like it was okay to be blatantly racist because, well, the president of America, he's blatantly racist. It's not okay. It's not okay at all. As I said, the administrators of Twitter and Instagram need to permanently ban the people involved. And not just that, forward their information onto the authorities. And let's have some of them prosecuted. Because that is hate speech. And it's not okay.
Axel Tunzebe is a young player. He's 23. He's got a big future ahead of him. And he's accomplished more in his life than those losers ever will. And that's what he needs to just take from it. He has done more in his life than every one of those losers who have tweeted him racial abuse will ever do. And the same for Martial. Martial can just sit back and count his money. Maybe send a picture of it to them. But what a horrible thing for both of them to have to experience. It's just not acceptable. One game tonight, Liverpool will play Spurs at Spurs. Liverpool are in terrible form. Spurs have been a little bit hit and miss. They've got two wins, two draws, and a defeat from the last five. Most of their draws this season are of their own making, games they should have won, but became too defensive, sat off, and allowed the opposition back into them. As I said the other day, they've basically cost themselves about nine points this season by being too conservative. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens tonight. If Liverpool get an early goal, it's probably the best thing for the game. If Spurs get an early goal, an early goal, uh, it's going to be a very difficult watch, and not just for Liverpool fans. Right. Um, today is Thursday. I know I'm quite away into this, but today is Thursday. So it is Twitter day. Um, there's a whole bunch of questions here. We'll fly through them. Uh, Dublin Demo asks, not a question as such, but can we just bury this nonsense about Thiago not being suited to Liverpool? Right, let, let it, let's put an end to this. First things first, he's not a defensive midfielder. He has been forced to play defensive midfield in his last couple of games, because Fabinho's playing centre-back, and Jordan Henderson has been either centre-back or injured. You would hope that tonight, with Henderson back, Henderson goes back into the holding midfield role, and that will allow Thiago to play further forward in his more natural position as a number eight, where he can have more of an influence on the game. He's been asked to do far too much defensive work. Like, you look at the United game, he had to mark Bruno Fernandes as well as try and be the hub of the team. He had to try and mark Bruno. He still had a good game, but that took him out of his rhythm and what he wants to do. He's a world-class footballer. He's one of the five best midfielders in the world and has been for the last five years. He's been one of the 15 best players in the world over the last five years. And anyone doubting that he's not a great player is an idiot. The idea that Liverpool haven't been heavily possession-based over the last two years is nonsense. Perpetrate, perpetrated by the likes of Didi Haman, who, he's on talk sport for a reason. He's on talk sport for a reason. That's all I'd say. Liverpool are not a counter-attacking team anymore. They can still counter-attack from set pieces, but they're not the way they were when Klopp first took over, when they sat deeper, invited teams on, and then tried to spring on the break. They're not like that anymore. They haven't been for a couple of years. Thiago fits the system perfectly. And once everybody's fit again, you'll see him play in his natural position. Ideally, Liverpool will move to a two-man midfield of him and Fabinho. That would be the optimum situation. That's where you'll get the most out of him. But as a number eight in the midfield three, I mean, his best performance this season was probably Everton away in the derby, the game he got hurt in, but he played left of the midfield three with Fabinho as the holding midfielder that day, and he was sensational. Um, 
I don't know what people expect when he's playing out of position. I really don't. Caddy John asks, are City playing defence first or is it just staying healthy that has led to improved goals against? They've definitely prioritised defending. They've definitely made a conscientious decision to become more solid at the back. Ruben Diaz is just, he's, a, he's been a transformational signing for them. Um, we're seeing Rodri play deeper this season and have less involvement on the ball. We're seeing Gundogan more involved on the ball. Rodri's role now is get it and give it. You know, he's not been asked to be, play a big expansive passing game as he was at times last year. He's he's on the ball a lot, but it is largely shuttling it to Gundogan or De Bruyne or out wide to Canseo or, or whichever fullback is making a run. They've settled on a centre-back pairing, which is which has helped. Stones has definitely played well. And it's the best run of form John Stones had in quite a while. I don't think they're more defensive now, though. I think it's... If you look at Pep's teams at at Barca, they had Puyol, who's obviously a great defender. Pique, who's a great footballer, not particularly great defensively. A lot of errors in his, in his game. Danny Alves, who was basically a winger playing fullback. And in midfield, while they had Busquets, who's incredible, Xavi and Iniesta aren't exactly ball winners, but because they would dominate play so much and have 75% of the possession, it allowed them to rest while they have the ball, which means that in the 25% of the game where they don't have the ball, they could press and press and press. And that's what you're seeing with this City team. This City team now resembles that Barca team a lot more, I think, than any Pep team since in terms of how they defend and the areas in which they defend. They've become very good defensively this season. There's no question. You can see that with their goal, goals against record, only 13 goals conceded. For context, Spurs are second with 17 conceded in one less game. And Spurs are much more defensive and a far less of the ball. So uh, City are doing, they're doing a great job. They really, really are. Um... Mikel Campbell, what does Dortmund need to do in order to win the Bundesliga again? Do you think Haaland will leave if they fail to qualify for the Champions League this season? Yeah. Um, no, I don't think Haaland will leave because I think they're going to sell Sancho either way. So I think that will cover any kind of losses they may have. What do they need to, need to do to win the league? And they need to... Well, they need to appoint a better manager for starters. They could have won the league either the last two years, but Lucien Favre just wasn't up to the task. They've got the bones of a really good team. Like, Akanji's a really good centre-back. Emre Chan's really good. Jude Bellingham's super talented. Axel Witzel's out injured now, but he's very good. They've got great attacking options in Gio Reyna, Sancho, Royce, Brands. Haaland, obviously. They could do with better fullbacks. Though I do like Nico Schultz at times. I'm not a big Rafa Guerrero fan. I prefer Nico Schultz. Um, they, nev- they need a centre-back next to Kanji. Hummels, at this point in his career, is a liability. When, again, it's kind of like Harry Maguire now. When the game's in front of him, it's fine. 
when he's asked to turn and run, he's he's lost. They need a better goalkeeper. Roman Berkey's just not he's not a top level goalkeeper. But they the real thing they need is a manager. They need a manager who is good enough to instill a real identity back into them. Dortmund, when they were great under Klopp, had an identity. When they were good under Tuchel, they had an identity. They haven't had that since. I think they need to find the right manager. I don't know who it's going to be. It could be Marco Rose. The other thing Dortmund need is the fans back in the stadium. For Dortmund, there's just something about that club that it's it's a bit like Liverpool. The atmosphere that those fans create really does spur the team on in, in games and moments where things aren't going well. But uh, yeah, ma- managerial change is what they need. I know that the guy they've got in at the moment is just a caretaker, but they need to figure out what direction they want to go and they need to go for a manager, stick with him, allow him to put his style of play in place. And they need to stop doing silly things in the transfer market. Like when they re-signed Mats Hummels for more than they'd sold him for, despite the fact that he would pass his best, and sold Diallo to PSG, this, despite him and Akanji having a great pairing. It's stupid, stupid decisions like that have cost them. Um, Harry Fuller, KS, which team outside the top eight, so that's the big six plus Leicester and Everton, could you see making the biggest push to get consistently into Europe? How how would they go about doing this? I think it's Aston Villa. I think they've got the financial backing, the structure. They've got a good manager. I'm not sure if he's good enough. He's certainly shown a lot of good this season. I'm not sure if he's the one that will get them over that line and into Europe, but he's doing a really good job this season, so we won't question him too much. They've got a really good squad. Their their needs are... They could probably do another goal scorer. They could definitely do another centre-back and probably a left-back. So, so Villa, just keep building the way you've built. They've built their team in stages over the last couple of years. And right now, I mean, they're when they go forward, they are just tremendous. And defensively, they've been very, very good this season. Uh, Ezri Konza, I think, has been one of the best centre-backs in the league all season. So for Villas, just be patient. Keep building. Don't lose sight of what you want to be. Um, Jay Reed. 1987, similar to a question you answered last week on Premier League players as sports athletes, what athletes from other sports would suit playing in the Prem or specific positions on the pitch? So, if you take Russell Westbrook, who's pre all the injuries he's had, is maybe the best athlete to ever play in the NBA, like the most explosive athlete. He's 6'4", He's got a good build on him. He's got an incredible leap. I think either as a goalkeeper or as a centre-back. Probably as, I'd probably want him as a goalkeeper. LeBron James is your ball-playing centre-back. But he's 6'8". He's lightning quick. He's super intelligent. Like rare level intelligence from a sporting point of view. 
Um, who else? I think Bryce Harper could be a bustling centre forward. He's got that arrogance about him. He's built like a tank, super strong, very, very powerful player. I think Bryce Harper as a as a striker would work. Mike Trout would be a box-to-box midfielder and he'd be the best at it because whatever Mike Trout decides to do, he's the best at. Pre-injury Derek Rose would have been a really fun winger. Um, tall for a winger, obviously, at 6'3", but we'll allow it. Um, but just his inventiveness, his aggression, his explosiveness, I think he could have done well there. Obviously, the partner up front for Bryce Harper is going to be the pacey one, Usain Bolt. That, that's got to be your, your front pairing. I think Sidney Crosby, another super intelligent player, another leader, a guy who can dictate the pace and tempo of a game as your holding midfielder next to Mike, Mike Trout. I think that works. He's retired now, but Dan Carter would have been... Dan Carter could have played football. There's no there's no doubt for me. He could have played football at a high level. When you can strike a ball as well... When you can strike a rugby ball as well as he could strike when and manipulate the things it does in the air, um, you could play football. Richie McCaw, he's retired as well, but he, he's my centre-back partner for, for, for um, LeBron James because... He's just a dog. He he would have been your Martin Keown type. You tell him to mark somebody and he climbs inside their jersey and just doesn't let them go. So yeah, th- those would be the ones that spring to mind straight away. Um Matt USA or MT USA is zero eight. If Liverpool stick to stick to a sell to buy strategy, what's your starting eleven and bench? On the opening day next season. Um, right. Allison and goal, obviously. Trent right back, Robbo left back, Virgil left centre back. They need a right side centre back. I would sell Joel Matip because I think with just the amount of injuries he's had, I think it's it's something you need to consider at least. If you sell Matip, you can maybe bring in the one I want is Kanate, but he's had the injury problems. I really like Jules Kunde, but I think he might be too small for Klopp. Klopp likes big dominant defenders. He's only if he's six foot, it's he's six foot in boots. He's not six foot in his flat feet. Um, I'll go Kanata even with the injuries because I just think he's he's sensational. Um, I've said before I'd like to see Liverpool change shape and change formation, so I'd move to a double pivot in midfield and have Fabinho and Thiago. 
I, they need a creator. They need to bring in someone that can be a creator from wide areas. The, the one I'd wanted was has just signed for Arsenal and Martin Odegaard. But, I mean, I don't know if he'll stay at Arsenal. So maybe I'll just go, I'll say Odegaard. He's the one I want, and I'm just going to stick with that. Mane on the left. Salah and Jota up front. Selling Shakiri and Harry Wilson to fund Odegaard. I think there's enough money there to fund that, and the wages will be covered as well. Um, on the bench, they need a backup goalkeeper. I'm not sure who that would be. I mean, I don't know if Ben Foster would be interested in playing another season, but Ben Foster would be a you know a solid backup goalkeeper. Um, Simicus. Whatever third centre-back they bring in. Because they need to buy two. Henderson. Keita. Firmino. And again, I'd like another, another attacker. I think they could do with adding another Jota level or slightly below. Someone like Matthias Kuna from uh, Hertha Berlin would be would be great. I think he's super talented, very young, only twenty one, loads of potential. So yeah, that's what I would do. You're selling Grujic, Origi, Wilson, Shakiri, Matip, Oxlade Chamberlain. You're still going to have to add other bits and to add a back, a right back. You probably need to bring in another one in midfield, someone young. Um, maybe you consider bringing Harvey Elliott back. I'm not sure. Um, Mikhail Campbell, who is the, who is historically the best Italian number ten, Baggio, Pirlo, or Totti? So, if you think of a traditional number ten being more an attacking midfielder than a kind of withdrawn striker, I think it's Totti. I think he's the most traditionally styled number ten. Del Piero had the best career. But for me, Baggio's the best player. Baggio's one of the best players I've ever seen. He was ridiculous. I I would have Roberto Baggio over pretty much anybody. There's not many better attackers that I've seen than Baggio. So I would go with him. Um, combine these five traits from five different players you've seen to create the perfect footballer. Dribbling, finishing, passing, skill, and speed. Speed, I would say... Cristiano. Skill, I would go with the original Ronaldo. No, I'll... For skill. Passing... Michael Laudrup. Finishing the original Ronaldo. The real Ronaldo. And dribbling. I'll go Roberto Baggio. I know people will say Messi. But whatever. Uh, Messi's as close to perfect as you can get anyway. So we might as well try and create someone to compete with him. Um, yeah. That's that's it. Uh, Adam Hanlon. At Nabilad. 
What do you think of Luka Jovic as an alternative forward signing for Liverpool instead of Haaland or Mbappe? Do you think Marcus Thuram would be a good option as a nine or a wide forward? I love Marcus Thuram. I think he'd be a wide forward for how Liverpool currently play. If they move to a front two, I think he can play in a two. But I don't think he could play as the nine just yet. Maybe in, maybe down the line. I, I really like Luka Jovic as well, and I, w- I would be in favour of signing him. I think if you can get him and play him regularly, and if he's playing with confidence, he will score goals for pretty much anybody in any league. Podrick Fagan, uh, who's the one player you would like to see Liverpool sign in the summer that you can think that you think can take Liverpool to the next level, but is also realistically gettable? I'd love to say Erling Haaland because. I think he is realistic. I just don't think Dortmund will sell him this year. I think next year there's a chance Liverpool could sign him. I don't see Mbappe as being realistic. Maybe that's just me, but I just don't see Mbappe as being realistic. Um, What I would do, in truth, is if it was up to me, I would keep Fabinho at centre-back next to Van Dijk, and that would be my pairing, and that's what I'd build off with Trent and Robertson. So now I need a pair, a partner for Thiago in centre midfield, and I would go for the guy I think is the best all-round midfielder in the game right now, and that's Saul Niguez from Atletico Madrid. Saul is brilliant defensively, super intelligent, works like a dog, Add something going forward. He's kind of a little bit out of favour at the minute with Atletico. I don't know what's happened with him and Simeone. He's always been one of the trusted lieutenants. But things are going really well for Atletico this season. And maybe in the shape they're playing, Simeone doesn't think that he fits. Thomas Lamar is finally having a good season. That's probably the role that Saul will play, but Saul is much more defensive than Lamar. So maybe he likes the balance he's got there and that new shape that he's using. So that's that's the guy I would go for. I think Saul is realistic, and I think he's transformational. I think you put Fab next to Van Dijk, you've got the best centre-back pairing in the world. And I don't see a better centre-midfield pairing than Saul and Thiago anywhere. So now that's spine, best goalkeeper, best centre-back, best pair of full-backs, best centre midfield. He's got Mane, world, his world-class on one wing. Salah, I would play up front. He's world-class. It's just those other two roles. Then you've just got to figure those two out. Um, YNWA Foodie asks, if Liverpool do not make top four, do you think their summer targets will st- still come? Due to not being in the Champions League. If Kanate is one, yeah, you could probably get him despite not being in Champions League. But there's been all this talk of Liverpool planning a big summer. And one name that continues to circle around is Jaden Sancho. I don't think Sancho would sign without Champions League football. Uh, Daryl McCusker asks, what do you make of Tuchel's first match? It's too early to tell. It's really too early to tell. They were obviously, like I said, they were far more focused on short passing, ball retention, possession dominance, territorial dominance, but 
you know, it, it's a work in progress. It's going to take some time. Uh, FC Moleman, if the Euros goes ahead in the summer, who are you predicting to be the new breakout star who could potentially get a move afterwards? Do you know, I haven't, I haven't actually given the Euros any thought at all. This will be good, Radio. Let me look this up. Let me look this up. Here we go. If he's in the squad, I'll go one from each group. I'll, I'll try to anyway. If he's in the squad, Abdil Kadur Omar of Turkey plays for Trabs and Spore. He could be one. He's super talented. There's a little bit of Bernardo Silva about him. Really good dribbler, hard worker, nasty little bugger at times. But super talented. I'm a big fan of him. He could be one. Uh, group B. Hmm. I don't know enough about the Russians, but there is... Fedor Chalov, the striker from CSKA Moscow, he would be the one I would look at and think maybe. Now, he's he's tailed off a little bit in the last couple of years, but two years ago he had a great season and looked like he was going to be a 30-goal-a-season striker. It's always difficult signing Russians because they don't tend to adapt all that well when they make their move. Uh, but I'll go with him from that group because I don't know enough about them. In terms of the Austrians, now he's not a young player, but I do think that these Euros land at a time when Conrad Lehmer is could potentially, if he's fully fit and back, could make a big name for himself. Uh, Javer Schlager, the other midfielder, is another one. He's very, very good. I really like him. He, he's at Wolfsburg. Either of those two from that group, I think I think both of those are, are really good and could move on to bigger clubs. Um, right, Group D is the England group. We know all the England players. There won't be any of them. The one I'd go for is from the Czech Republic. Assuming he makes the squad, which I assume he will because he's maybe the most talented player they've produced since Pavel Nedved. Adam Hlozek, uh, Sparta Prague, super talented forward. He might be the one overall in this tournament if he makes the squad, which I'd be stunned if he doesn't, but he just weird things happen. He would be the one I would say has the biggest chance to really make an impression and surprise a lot of people. Um, group E, the Spanish players are fairly well known. I'll go for Poland. Sebastian Seismanski, he plays for uh, Dinamo Moscow. Really talented left-footed player. Dribbler, passer, creator. The The other one I would have said is is the left-back, um, Michael Karbonik, but he's already signed for Brighton, so don't think it'll be him. But yeah, I'll go for, I think it's Seismanski is how you pronounce his name. I'm As you all know, I'm dreadful with pronunciations. Um... I mean, the one in Group F was was going to be Dominic. It was just going to be Dominic. He was, you know, primed to do something. What a horrible group for Hungary to get, though. Portugal, France, and Germany. Like, that's a killer of a group. 
I would say you're probably looking at I it could be Neto. It could be Pedro Neto from that group. I don't know how much he'll play because the Portuguese team in attack is just loaded with Cristiano still, you know, knocking about. You've got Neto, you've got Trinkau, you've got Diogo Jota, you've got João Felix. Andre Silva's in great form. Uh, Gonzalo Guedes is in good form. There's a lot of really good attacking players um, that Portugal can call on. So if he gets enough game time, Neto's the one for me. So Neto from Group F. Simanski from Group E. Klozak from Group D. Bozic? I don't God knows. Um, Lamer or Schlager? Pro- I'll go Schlager because he's at a, he's at Wolfsburg, who are less prominent than than Leipzig. So Schlager, um, yeah, I, I I can't think of anyone else in that group. A group B, unless the only one. With a real chance. Yari Vacheren of Belgium is super talented. He's at Anderlecht. He's an attacking midfielder, but he can play a little bit deeper if needed. He could be, he's probably a better bet from Group B because, like I say, the Russians don't tend to export well. So I'll go for him, Yari Vacheren from Group B. And, um, Omar from from Turkey in Group A, assuming he's in the squad. He's got seven caps. He's been capped fairly recently. He was in the squad in November, but had to pull out with an injury. I would say he will make the squad. Abdul Qadir Omar, I, I think it's going to be him. I I really like watching him play. That Trabzonspor team are quite fun. Um, when Yusuf Yaziki was there, the guy who's now at Lille, those two together were really really good so that's that's that um alex wilson do you see there's been a late flurry of transfers going through in the last couple of days of the window and do you think the summer will be quiet as well I, i'm not sure i did think we would see a lot more action this week but it, it's all kind of coming to a a bit of a damn squib the summer i, I it all depends on on where we are with you know, with the vaccine, I suppose. If it looks like there'll be fans back in the stadiums next season, which, as things stand, it does, fingers crossed, then, yeah, may- maybe we see a busier summer. Uh, the future of Harvey Elliott, attacking midfielder or winger. Kind of a wide attacking midfielder. That role I mentioned for Odegaard, I think that's kind of where you'd play him. Um, but he could play as a 10, for sure. Is he part of a rebuilding of our midfield if Ginny Wijnaldum and James Milner leave and with Henderson 31 next season, how do you how do we plan for filling the engine room roles? Well, I, like I said, I'd, I'd buy Saul because he's 26 and he's incredible. Uh, I wouldn't be against the move for Sander Berger with Sheffield United looking doomed. Um, I think you can get him at a good price. Um, Andy the Red, is Jordan Henderson your favourite player of all time? Lubo Murkov, smart arse that he is, 
it has to be Henderson or Lovren. Andy replies, they remind me of Hansen and Sunes. To which Lubo requires, replies, top quality leadership on the pitch. Well, aren't you two lads going to find yourselves blocked on all social media? Um, David Fox, I think you said before that the 3-4-3 is your ideal formation of football. Uh, if that's true, why? It my, my favourite formation... Right, I've got two. I love a box midfield. Absolutely adore a box midfield. A box midfield or a diamond that I'm delighted. Now, my favourite formation is more of a 3-5-2 than a 3-4-3. A back three, but I want a sweeper. I want a free-flowing central player who bombs forward from that deep role. My my One of my favourite teams of all time is the German team from the 1996 Euros, where Matthias Sammer played as a sweeper, where he was basically a really deep-lying midfielder who would bomb forward and join attacks. Then you had Marcus Babel and Thomas Helmer. It was originally Jürgen Kohler, but he got hurt. Babel and Helmer as centre-backs who could play as a two when Zammer went forward, could slide out and fill the full-back spots. Both of them were at home in the full-back roles when the defensive midfielder, who was Dieter Else, would slide back into centre-back next to Zammer and they would form a four. You had Stefan Reuter as a right-wing back, super-attacking player. Christian Ziga as a left-wing back, again, a super-attacking player. Dieter Else as a holding midfielder next to Thomas Hassler, who's a brilliant playmaking midfielder. And what will often happen is Else would drop deep by himself. Hassler would push forward. You'd have Hassler as a playmaker next to Andy Muller, who was a goal-scoring attacking midfielder. And it would become a one and a two in the midfield rather than a two and a one. And then you had the two strikers. It was largely Beerhoff and, and Klinsman or Stefan Kunz and Klinsman. They were the weakness of the team. Everything else behind them was brilliant and it functioned so well. It was so fluid. It had the ability to change shape really easily. And that's kind of why I like a, a good 3-4-3 or a good 3-5-2 can shift shapes into a bunch of other formations if you have the right players. So if you have centre-backs who can, who can fl- swap out to full-back, you can pull a full-back, uh, pull a wing-back back and go right centre-back to right-back. Everybody shifts across. Or right wing-back back, left centre-back to left-back. And again, everybody shifts. Your holding midfielder is good enough and positionally aware enough. They can drop into centre-back. Your outside centre-backs go to full-back. And again, you've got a back four. It just gives you a lot of flexibility. It allows you to be really good in transition. And I think transition defence is what separates the good teams from the great teams. So that's basically why. I know it's a bit rambly, but that's basically why. Um, Madvance. Would you take, at their top level, Robbie Fowler or Alan Hansen for the Liverpool team at the moment? Alan Hansen, without question, I think he's, after Virgil, he's the best defender we've ever had at the club. Fowler would be a joy because imagine if someone was able to finish in this Liverpool team and and not miss as many chances as <coughs> Bobby Firmino uh, misses. Yeah, no, I, I'd take both, but if I had to pick one, I'd pick Hansen. Uh Loser underscore underscore 70, whose 
name is winner. Um, is Van Dyke one of the top three defenders ever? No. No, he's not. He's he's the best defender in the world now. He's one of the top three of the last ten years, but he's not he's not top three ever. Um Maldini is one, Baresi is two, and then there's a bunch competing for third, but I wouldn't put Van Dyke in that group. The likes of Nesta, Jurgen Kohler, who I mentioned, Bere uh, Beckenbauer, Skitano, there's just loads. There's loads, but no, I wouldn't put Virgil in that kind of company. There has been a record of nine different Premier uh, This is from O underscore M underscore four underscore or underscore. I assume his name is Omar. I assume his name is Omar. I've just read that completely wrong. Uh, there's been a record of nine different Premier League sides that have held top spot this season. After the halfway stage, do you think someone will pull away and hold that top spot, or will there be a continuation of the musical chairs? I, I think Bernadette Strickland has replied, and I think she's right. I think it'll be City. It's just very hard to look beyond them at the minute. The form they're in, six wins on the on the bounce, keeping clean sheets, scoring goals, even without De Bruyne, they look they look just deadly. Um, I, I think it's going to be City. I think they're going to win the league, potentially by up to eight points. Uh, everybody else is struggling at the moment. Um, Gary M. LFC 1980. Why do so many top footballers refuse point blank to work on their weak foot? I'm thinking in particular of Sadio Mane and Mo Salah. Uh, but there are others too. Robertson kills attacks by refusing to use his left foot. Right. I would say there are more right-footed players who are good with their left foot. A higher percentage, because obviously there's far more right-footed players than there's left-footed players. But I'd say a higher percentage of right-footed players are stronger with the weaker, are strong with the weaker foot than left-footed players are strong with theirs. There's very few really ambidextrous players. Like, I think Mason Greenwood is really two-footed. Usman Dembele is really two-footed. Robbie Fowler is really two-footed. Santi Cazorla was very two-footed, is very two-footed. Adam Lalana is quite two-footed. There's not a whole lot that are equally, or, you know, close to equally good. I think left-footed players, I don't know what it is. Left-footed players are rarely any use with their right foot. Like, James Rodriguez scored a great goal last night with his right foot. But it was a bit of a swinger. Like, when you look at the technique of how he struck that ball and how he strikes the ball with his left foot, it's really, really different. Um, whereas you often see right-footed players with good left-footed technique. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, Nick Turner. Why is Tuchel held in such high regard for what he did at Dortmund? You mentioned the front four of Oba, Mkhitaryan, Kagawa and Rice. But all those players were there under Klopp. Didn't he just continue to work? No, not really. What See, you mentioned there about the, the Trump-Obama thing. It wasn't really like that because under Klopp, things had sort of reached their end and were tailing off. The players were exhausted. It had all kind of run its course. Tuchel sort of bred new life back into the whole thing. Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang had never hit their best level under Klopp. They've never been better than they were under Tuchel. Both of them were world world class that season. They were both arguably top 10 in the world that season. Mkhitaryan had 50 combined goals and assists in that season. He was sensational. Royce got a new lease of life. Kagawa had struggled after coming back from United. He'd been brilliant the first time he was there. Went to United, struggled. Came back to Dortmund, struggled. 
under the the Tuchel regime, he was he was sensational again. Gundogan took off as well. He'd been good under Klopp. He was better under Tuchel. And Julian Vigel was sensational there. So I think it was more that he kind of re-energized the place. He made them, I don't want to say more exciting, but they were more out-and-out attack-minded. And they were a lot less press-heavy, but they were just, I think they were more fun to watch. Um, so I, I think he deserves the credit he, he gets from, from that. Um, Lubo and Andy, you, you boys are getting banned. That is just that. Uh, Footy Scribblers, I'm proposing a change of the current FIFA rule. As you know, I'm Nigerian. I feel the rule for competitive appearance making him or her ineligible for the nation just gives security to bigger nations at more clout. Yeah, so he gives the example of someone like Tamore, who has won England cap, I think, and is no longer eligible to play for Nigeria. Um, yeah, I think if a player isn't picked for his national team for a spell of like two to three years, I think they should be allowed, if they're eligible for somebody else, they should be allowed to swap. I, I do agree. I, I think the, the rule is unfair. And you get a lot of this. Like England have capped, I remember England capped Carl Jenkinson. And like he was clearly not good enough to play for England. But Hodgson gave him a cap just to stop him playing for Finland. Uh, I think it was because of his mother finished or something. Yeah, his mother was Finnish Sweden. He could have played for Finland. Maybe he could have played for Sweden as well if he's got a Swedish grandmother. Um, he had played for Finland underage. Hodgson gave him one cap and he never got another one. He could have got 50 caps for Finland, maybe. I don't know how good the Finnish national team is, but yeah, I, I think it's I think it's unfair and you do see a lot of that. Um, Eddie Gibbs, team of current Premier League players aged over 30 only. I'll tell you what, Eddie, that's going to take me a bit of time. I'll answer that tomorrow because I have to go. We've been over an hour on this one. It's nearly an hour and a half, and you're going to shout at me for that. So uh, you won't shout, in fairness, like, you know. But, you know, you and Gags like these things to be kept nice and short. So uh, I'll keep that one for tomorrow. I will answer that tomorrow. That is it. That is all the questions, I think. If I've missed your question, I apologize. Um, thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle, as always, for his work. Thank you to Fox Haunt. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourself and goodbye. Podcast Network.